Good evening and welcome to Spirit of Grace Church. We're so glad that you're here to join us online again this week. And we're so thankful for everything that God is doing. And we are looking forward to a great Easter weekend this weekend. If you don't have a home church and you're close to Coon Rapids, Minnesota, we want to invite you to Spirit of Grace Church at 1030 for a great service in remembering the story of Easter and the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And uh, it's going to be a great, great day. We encourage you to come and join us. Come expecting to receive from the risen Savior His Spirit and His presence. And uh, it's going to be fun to be together. Tonight I want to just, we're in between that Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and uh, I want to share with you from the Bible out of Isaiah 53, and I want to talk a little bit about the last seven sayings of Jesus um, from the cross. So I'm going to read from Isaiah 53 uh, for just a little bit, and then we're going to go into what I believe the Lord was saying at the close of his time here on earth. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And uh, let's continue on just a couple more minutes here of reading. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so opened he not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Uh, shall And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. I'm thankful tonight for Calvary. I'm thankful that I'm able to find in Christ a way of dealing with my old nature, with my sins, with my shortcomings, with everything that uh, is against God that has happened in my life, in my mind, in my actions. And uh, I, I believe that from the very beginning, God had in his mind, if you will, in his plans, a way for me to dwell with him. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and he rested on the seventh. And then when man sinned, all of creation was affected, and to this day travails under the burden of estrangement from its creator. There's a separation between us. No part of creation is more affected than man. The consequences of sin are judgment and death, if you read Romans chapter 3 and chapter 6. Eternal death, eternal separation from God, as well as temporal separation from God. When we sin, we feel separated even in this life. The burdens and the cares and the disappointments, grief and sorrow that befall us in this broken world are often more than we seem to be able to handle. And uh, so just as all of creation happened in seven days, so also is the recreation, if you will, or what we may call the redemption of creation, encompassed in the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. These seven sayings of Jesus were much more than the desperate cries of a tortured man. Yes, he was tortured. Yes, he felt the pain as much or really more as any man would. Nevertheless, amazingly, in spite of his pain and agony, the words he spoke from the, crowd, from the cross manifest the most profound statements that uh, of truth and blessing that when we understand what he was saying can change and transform our life. You see, the day that Jesus died on the cross, the old creation died with him. His death, which satisfied the justice of God in every respect, made possible the dawning of a brand new day. In fact, the suffering of Jesus is what we would call vicarious, or that is, it was on our behalf, which means that all of our sin nature itself and the individual sins that you and I have committed in our lives were all nailed to Calvary's tree that day. Our sins were transferred to him, and he paid the debts for those sins that we had incurred. But just as our sin was transferred to him, conversely, the way was open for his life to be transferred to us at Calvary. You see, resurrection still happens today. Every time a person begins to trust in Jesus and, and turns from his wicked ways and is baptized and born of the water and of the Spirit, uh, we experience what Romans says, that like as he that raised up Christ, even so we should also walk in newness of life, a brand new life that is unimaginably better than the one that we had before. And it all happened because Jesus hung on that cross so many years ago. And so I want to just share those sayings that Jesus gave us while he was on the cross. The first one in Luke 23, verse 34, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. Before creation, the world was without form and empty in absolute darkness, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And the Spirit of God hovered over the water, and the water covered the whole earth. And then God spoke those first creative words in verse 3 of Genesis 1, let there be light. And when he manifest himself, according to John chapter 1, the word was God. In verse 14, the word became flesh. Flesh. When he manifest himself in human form in the man Christ Jesus and entered this world, he came to a race of people that had natural light in abundance. Man had even discovered how to create his own light so as never to be in the dark. Even after 15 uh, years or 
after 15 years of living in Kansas City, let me put it that way, uh, I am still very much in awe of remembering the magnificent view of the lights uh, down on the plaza in Kansas City. We went down there every year of the 16 years that we lived there, and it's hard to describe to somebody who's never been there just how colorful and bright those lights were and how abundant they were. I remember the first Thanksgiving that we had lived there uh, in Kansas City. Uh, we lived in Lee Summit, and my uh, parents and brother and sister, they brought my grandmother, and on that Friday night of Thanksgiving uh, weekend, we took them all down to the plaza. And all my mother or all my grandmother could do in her little Irish heritage was, oh, my heart in heaven. It was just so overwhelming to her. Well, when Jesus came, he came to a world that was filled with darkness, but the darkness was of another kind. It was a spiritual darkness. Sin had extinguished the light of relationship and fellowship with God, and the created was separated from the creator. Mankind had manufactured spiritual darkness of a much greater kind and of a much greater amount than the many natural light-generating devices that he has invented. And Isaiah, when he prophesied of the Messiah, he said this, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them, the light shined, in Isaiah 9, 2. Jesus said in John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. All of us that have begun a new life in Christ know what it was like to live in the darkness of sin. Uh, our lives were without form and void, so to speak. They were empty, just like the world was before he spoke creation into existence. And just at, as at the beginning in Genesis, when God created natural light to dispel natural darkness, he created spiritual light in the face of his own humanity to destroy the darkness of our sin. And just as the Holy Spirit hovered over a formless, empty, and cold planet, so now he hovers over humanity, calling us to Jesus, the light of the world. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you may show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now are you the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Darkness, uh, darkened or despairing, empty men and women, you and I, who had lost identities, whose lives were lightless and lifeless, are now called into the marvelous light, the most marvelous light of all, the light that Jesus gives, light that he alone can give. Nobody else can give it. So where does it begin? It begins with forgiveness. Come to the cross tonight and hear those first words resound in your soul. These are not the words of a desperate man, for Jesus was not desperate, but these words were the man who suffered willingly on our behalf, who could have called ten thousands of angels at his disposal and set him free, but he didn't. These are not the words of a mere man, but the words of the Creator himself. Let there be light is a timeless decree that has not lost, nor will it ever lose its potency. The all-powerful one, the omnipotent one, decrees what John described as the true light that lights every man into being. This is the eternal life, abundant life, life separated forever from the life of darkness, sin, death, and judgment. 
recreation, redemption, restoration, all of it begins with forgiveness. And on the cross, Jesus said with the first words that he had from, uh, from, from the cross to open up the human heart uh, uh, to the light of the gospel and new life begins. It all begins with forgiveness. Let repentance flow from your heart and let the darkness go and let the light pour in. For Jesus said from the cross, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. I'm thankful for, for his forgiveness tonight. I'm thankful for everything that he's done. I'm thankful because he has not only taken care of all of my sins and shortcomings, he has washed me whiter than snow. That brings us to the second saying that Jesus said on the cross in Luke chapter 23, verse 43. He said, today, talking to the thief that was next to him, you will be with me in paradise. So to whom does God offer forgiveness? Is it to the best among us? Is it to those who have met some preconceived condition or understanding? We get a small glimpse into the realm of love that is measureless and an ever so minuscule peek into God's infinite reservoir of forgiveness, if you will. And when we hear those words echo from the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. We marvel at a man who, with disregard for his own immense pain, his own undeserved suffering, reaching out to a guilty man who deserved to die, and a sinner, the severity of whose crimes we don't know, but he was judged by the Romans to be the worst, deserving death on a cross. He heard those sin-forgiving, life-imparting words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then Jesus spoke uh, to that man, heard that, and dare he believe what Jesus just said? Does he dare to believe that those words of forgiveness could apply to him? He took a first little step of faith that we must all take if we're going to know the blessings and the power of forgiveness. He asked Jesus, don't forget me. Um, in his death, but to remember him when he came into his kingdom. That's all he asked. He did not ask to go to heaven. He did not ask to be set free. He did not ask to get taken down from off the cross and given freedom in this world. He just said to remember him with no real understanding of the gospel. That's what he said. He just remember me. A simple request Possibly, maybe. Nevertheless, heaven heard that request differently. Light was released. Revelation was released. Darkness was dispelled. And forgiveness and the remissions of sins were transacted. The righteousness of the man on the middle cross was credited to the thief on the side cross. And the shout from the cross was heard from one heaven to the other. Make way for another saint. Make way. No longer a sinner whose fate was sealed by Roman decree and Roman court, but one was forgiven. Today, this man was going to be with Jesus in paradise. You see, we try to come up with this whole laundry list and uh, Jesus knows the heart. Jesus knows what it, what it means and where it is and how it all takes place. Just come to Jesus because he's the one that went to the cross for us. Which brings us to the third saying tonight. In John chapter 19, verse 26, he looks down at John. He says, dear woman, here is your son. And talking to Mary and John, he said, dear woman, this is, here is your son. We think sometimes that it would be better to die than to live. Life's burdens can become so overwhelming 
that it would be better to die. We are living in an age right now where suicide is is rampant, where uh, the despair and depression and the uh, lack of hope is immense. Uh, the trials have become so great that 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 there's no one it seems who we can turn to even find help from. Who can imagine the anguish of a mother watching the death of her son on a Roman cross, seeing him writhe in pain, seeing the open wounds upon his back, seeing the blood uh, course from his body? I don't even know how she remained conscious that day as she stood at the foot of the cross. And there are times in life when if we had the choice, it would be better to be the thief than the mother of Jesus. The pain of death would pass, but the pain of bereavement and grief would live on. Uh, We read it in Isaiah. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The prophet even used the word surely when he added, surely he bore our grief and carried our sorrows. Surely he bore grief. Surely he carried us. Surely is an adverb, and that adverb speaks of the greatest comfort, of the greatest sustaining power in the universe. More than just our sins and diseases, our grief and our sorrow was transferred to Christ when he hung on the cross and was borne by Christ while he hung on the cross. There have been martyrs throughout generations that have garnered the fortitude necessary to die for their faith at at man's evil wickedness and, and die for their Lord by drawing on this power. Men and women throughout the ages have endured uh, the most unspeakable atrocities through strength drawn from this well that he has borne our grief and our and our our sorrow. People of faith have learned that they can do all things through Christ's strength and that his strength overrides even the power of grief and sorrow. The highest heights have been attained and the greatest accomplishments have been made in spite of the greatest obstacles through the power of the cross of Jesus. When Jesus spoke to his mother and then uh, turning from his mother to John, John was compelled to take up the interests of a son for his mother and care for the mother of Jesus in the days to come. Does Jesus still care about our grief and our sorrows that we bear or that are borne by a world living under the weight of sin? You better believe it. Paul's uh, words are poignant. They're strong. They're compelling. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, he says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so in the same manner that Jesus transferred the responsibility of care to his grief-stricken mother, to the Apostle John, he assigns the same responsibility of the church to help others. We become our Lord's agents uh, of care and love to both the church and to the world when we recognize that he is giving us from the cross the opportunity to care for one another. Not only does he leave us with his spirit, but he leaves us with the body of Christ. It's the reason why the body of Christ is so important, because the body of Christ feeds off one another, supports one another, cares for one another, and leads one another into greater depths of who he is. The fourth saying is found in Matthew chapter 27. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken is a word that conjures up the worst of human experiences. We are reminded of 
stories of husbands leaving their wives, wives leaving their husbands, of children who cannot understand the absence of one or other parents for any reason, even death. It speaks of divorce. It speaks of loneliness. It speaks of rejection and all of the hurts and the pains of abandonment. And then shame deepens its hold on the human heart when, as so often is the case, the person that's rejected blames him or herself for the sins of another. You see, our transgressions and our iniquities and our sin were born by Jesus on the cross. Our sickness and death were born by him also. In addition, he bore our grief and he carried our sorrow. What more could he possibly do for us? It's a fair question to ask when one considers all that he's already done. Yet amazingly, there's more. He took our shame. He took our shame. All the hurts of rejection, the hurts of abuse, mistreatment by others, and all the other transgressions that we commit that make us unlikable, he bore those on the cross. All our forsaken experiences were placed on Jesus. And for our sakes, he endured what was for him the greatest of all tortures, the feeling of rejection and abandonment and being forsaken. Is there hope in Christ for the sinner, the sick, the grief-stricken, the sorrowful? Absolutely, there's hope. There, there's hope because uh, the forsaken, it's the kind that heals the deepest pain of rejection and abandonment uh, with all of its shame. The answer from the cross resounds in every brokenhearted person who has ever turned to him. Yes, 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 yes. Your shame can be broken. Your rejection can be broken. Your abandonment, your loneliness can be found because Jesus felt and experienced exactly what that's like. And so when you feel all by yourself and you feel rejected, you feel lonely, you feel out in left field on your own, just know this. Jesus knows how you're feeling. Jesus knows how you're feeling. I'll say it again. Jesus knows how you're feeling. And if he knows how you're feeling, then he is one of the most empathetic people of all time. And he's right there with you, giving you peace that passes understanding if you'll allow him to step into your life tonight. He felt the abandonment and the rejection on Calvary. The fifth saying tonight in John 19, 28 is, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. How did Jesus suffer? Was it as deity, insulated from human weakness and feeling? No, he suffered as the Son of Man, subject to the feelings uh, of pain as any one of us are subject to. He who is and who gives the water of life emptied himself of this. And every resource when he died on our behalf was he was truly man. He, he truly died. He was thirsty because he was human. He was thirsty just like you and I get thirsty. He, he had everything was drained from him. He had overcome so much in such a short amount of time from the, the scourging upon his back, which we cannot reenact how gory those details must have been. How he must have felt having carried that cross down the Via Dolorosa. How the crown of thorns that was plated into his brow, probably felt as they were being hammered. The the mocking, the spitting, the plucking of the beard, the, all of the things that our Jesus went through. He was letting us know by saying, I'm thirsty, 
that he wasn't using his deity to overcome everything that he was feeling it just like you and I feel it just like you feel rejected just like you feel burdened just like you feel injured he did it but he did it magnified because he took upon it all from all of humanity from the beginning of time to the end of time that's how much pressure was on him and how much shame the sixth thing john 19 verse 30 it is finished. Jesus wasn't finished, although it looked like he was. His work was finished. Jesus wasn't done, but his work was done. The sacrifice that enabled the restoration of man to God was completed. Eternally, nothing was left undone. Nothing else was necessary. Complete satisfaction for our sins and the judgment that our sins uh, entitled uh, was made and the debt that was incurred by the entire human race was totally and completely satisfied that moment when Jesus said, it is finished. The word forgiven literally means remitted. It's a term used uh, regarding the payment of an account. So when he forgave us and, and, and when he paid that price and when he came to the, fu- the fulfillment of that and he said, it is finished, it means that the full satisfaction of the debt incurred by man and his sin against God's holy nature was paid in full at that moment on the cross. You see, on the sixth day of creation, when God created man, he looked at what he had done and it was very good, according to Genesis one thirty one. Creation in all its beauty and wonder was complete. And similarly, the sixth saying of Jesus on the cross marked the completion, if you will, of the recreation. And it was very, very good. How good was it? Well, ask anybody who's been forgiven, and he'll tell you how good it is. Ask the person healed from cancer by the grace of our Lord. She'll tell you. Ask the drug addict, the prostitute, the adulterer, the gambler, the thief, the murderer. Ask anyone whose life has been changed by Jesus Christ, and they'll all tell you the finished work of the cross is very, very good. I'm thankful that he said it was finished. I'm thankful that the the process was done because that process being finished, though it was being the ending of that moment, it was the beginning for me. It was the start of an opportunity for me to live a life that was unhindered and unencumbered by the things of this world because of the blessings of Jesus. And then the last saying that he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit in Luke 23, 46. The book of Genesis records how God rested when he finished all the work that he was doing. On the cross, Jesus, with the last words he uttered, Jesus spoke of coming home to his Father. Gone were the words, why have you forsaken me? Gone was the greatest anguish of his soul. Deity's loving, approving eyes could once again look upon the human that he loved. The sins that turned him away were left nailed to the cross, but Jesus wasn't. He came off the cross to live again. His very good work now completed earned him the right to be restored to his rightful place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There can be no greater rest than this. The Bible said, we read it earlier, Jesus bore our transgressions. 
He bore our iniquities, our sin, our grief, our sorrow, our sickness, our rejection, our shame. And now to top it all off, when we thought there was nothing more to add, he bears our tiredness and our weariness as well. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, we learn that Jesus is our rest. He is our Sabbath. No longer is the Sabbath one day a week in this new covenant. Today is the day of Sabbath. Every day we find our rest in him. We rest from the weariness of struggling to pay and atone for our sins. We find relief from life's burdens, and the seventh saying assures us this. We all know that how we long for the rest when we're weary, how good it is when that rest finally comes. Our longing for rest is proportional to our weariness. Nothing but rest can take away tiredness and weariness. No one but Jesus can give us the rest from the struggle from sin and from the trials and the burdens of life. In fact, he said it in Matthew 28 this way, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's his promise. The seventh saying from Jesus from the cross assures us that he will fulfill that promise. Everything you and I, in fact, everything this whole world needs was provided for Jesus, by Jesus, on the cross for us. On a number of occasions in the Bible, the number seven signifies the completion of something. Maybe that's why some people consider it a lucky number today, but the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross were anything but luck. They reflect the deliberate and planned acts of Almighty God the act of greatest mercy and the acts of greatest grace were all encompassed upon what we're getting ready to celebrate this weekend. At Calvary, where I first saw the light, at Calvary, where the blood flows, at Calvary, where forgiveness is found, at Calvary, where hope is restored, at Calvary, where addiction is broken, at Calvary, where lonesomeness is dispelled, and friendship is regathered. At Calvary, where Jesus looks at me and gives me the responsibility of caring for one another. It's at Calvary where I find where I belong. I belong in the kingdom of God. It's at Calvary where the brow was was penetrated by the crown of thorns. It lets me know that my mind is protected now by the presence and the spirit of Almighty God. It's at Calvary where life changes. Calvary is the fulcrum of eternity. Before Calvary, I had no hope. After Calvary, I am uh, I have hope beyond measure. Before Calvary, there was only pain and suffering and sickness and separation. And after Calvary, there may be that in the natural world, but in my spirit, man, I am free. I am free. I am free. And I'm looking forward to the day where I go home to a land that flows with milk and honey, where there's streets of gold, there's walls of jasper, gates of pearl, seas of crystal. And more importantly than that, where you and I can gather together not around the cross this time, but around the throne. But if we don't gather around the cross this week, if we don't take the time in our life to recognize what Calvary does, we're not going to recognize the one sitting on the throne. For the one sitting on the throne was the one hanging on the cross. I'm thankful for Calvary today. I know that this is classified as Holy Week 
But Easter isn't a once a year uh, celebration. Easter is a daily opportunity. No matter where you're at, if you need Calvary, if you're watching this tonight and you are racked with shame and guilt, you are racked with sin and hopelessness, I want to challenge you where you're at to fall on your knees before him and cry out to him and find your own personal Calvary in that moment. I find it interesting that uh, I believe that we have guesses as to where Christ hung on a cross. And tradition and history will tell us it's a certain place out there, but nobody can take you to the exact place where that cross was. And I believe that that's on purpose. I believe that God understood mankind's um, tendency, I guess is the word, proclivity, to find a place and memorialize a place to where the place becomes more important than the person of the place. And I believe that's why we don't know exactly where the cross was. We can take our guesses. We know it was outside of Jerusalem. We know it was on a hill called Golgotha, which was the place of the skull. But you can't take and mark the X on the hill where the cross stood that day. But you can take and recognize that wherever you are at, wherever you are going through, if you're driving a car, if you're sitting at home, if you're sitting in office, wherever you are, that's where Calvary can be. That's where these words can ring out in your life. That's where your transformation can take place. That's when you can cross over the great divide of time and go from that which is mortal to that which is immortal, to that which is from that which is corruptible to that which is incorruptible. You can have the precious blood of Christ applied to your life wherever you're at because Calvary is now wherever you're at. Jesus' arms are outstretched to you today. He has spoken these words over you. Forgiveness is yours. Paradise is yours. The body of Christ is yours. There is a quenching of your thirst and the quenching of your desire is yours. And we are looking forward to a day because the price was totally paid. We are looking forward to the day where we gather together around the throne room of heaven. Praise God. Praise God. If you're there tonight and you're watching this and you're thinking, Pastor, this just is, is hitting home, I want you just to close your eyes with me. I want you to imagine yourself kneeling at a cross where Jesus is hanging there and, and, and his blood is pouring and his words are coming out and, and he's beginning to talk to you and he's beginning to minister to you. Lord, I'm asking you right now for that person who is being, uh, Lord, feeling the anointing heaviness of your presence. Lord, let them find their personal Calvary. Lord, I know you're not hanging on the cross any longer, but Lord, you take the applications of what you paid that day. Lord, those things that you said, those principles are alive for every person to come by Calvary and receive what you have for them. I'm asking you, Lord, for those that are hurting and suffering that they would find a place in you right now, and let them feel the wonderful presence of Almighty God. Let your forgiveness flow. Let your spirit flow. Let your mercy and grace flow. We'll be careful, God, to give you all praise and glory and honor in Jesus' wonderful name. Thank you for Calvary, God. Thank you for Calvary. Amen, amen. If Again, if you don't have a home church to go to on Sunday, we want to invite you to Spirit of Grace Church at 10110 Woodcrest Drive in Northwest in Coon Rapids. 
And we believe that it's going to be a great celebration of the resurrection of the Lord on Sunday. Come expecting to uh, experience the presence of Almighty God. And if Jesus should tarry, we'll gather together at 1030 on Sunday morning. May God richly bless you and have a wonderful rest of your week.